How many of you arise every morning and say it's great to be alive? Greater still to have something to live for. For the luster of life is in the sense of worth and its, its purpose. And yet so often we Christians do not always look like we have that, that zeal and joy. And the world looks at us and wonders about the church because it reads that among its people there are many differences, all kinds of friction and alienation. The play of politics and high levels of institutions. Martin Marty reminded us again on Friday of the, the need that the world see the church as the people of God who who are distinct in their lives and who live with this kind of dynamic that it's great to be alive. For we do have the resources and we are part of the kingdom of God here in this world. <clears throat> Some people, according to one author from Edinburgh, believe that the church is a way of sucking people into a small world, sort of like swimming in a pool when most people have in their hearts a desire to swim in the sea. And people get the idea that the limitations of the church, the, the provincialism and the impracticality of the faith is all there is. And so we raise the question many times in our own minds. Or perhaps without raising the question, we simply make assumptions by which we live. That there's one realm for the faith and another realm for life. And people live this way. Do we really have what it takes to live in this world? And should the world know that we have what it takes? And how do we tell them? And what is it that we have? It makes the faith very relevant to every age. For Jesus didn't teach some separate knowledge about a separate existence. But he came to live in this world and to be part of our experience. The 10th chapter of John is about a discussion that Jesus had regarding the relevance of who he was to the people who listened to him. And he said he was a shepherd. He was a door. He's the gateway into the kingdom. He came to guide, to lead, to be a blessing, to provide and then he said, I came that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. Is it possible that we haven't heard him as he places himself as a person in the very center of it? Or having heard him, do we still not have what it takes to live in this world? 
found an encouraging letter from a, a student in Washington. It seems that while he was in high school, he came close to having a nervous breakdown and dropped out. And now, however, he has found a way to live that was new to him. He found it by giving his life to Christ and finding God. And now he's in college, and this is the way he writes. By the time I reached college, I was introduced to anti-religious ideas, but I was so turned on to life that I didn't need a needle in my arm to make me forget my world. My life is full of power, and I am confident now that there is no limit to what I can achieve with God as my partner. He found a source of strength. He now has a capacity to reject those things that only help him forget his miserable world. And we know the world is full of misery, of brokenness, of greed, of misconduct, immorality, an invitation to the, to the greatest of sins. But here's a young man who has a way to deal with it. And he's right in the middle of that world with all of its opportunities and he finds his greatest source of strength in the presence of the living Christ. Has the church missed it? Have we missed it? Did Jesus miss it when he said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I'd like to ask this question, and I'd like to answer it in these next few weeks. I'd like to, to analyze and develop your thoughts on what it takes to live in this world, and to see that Jesus himself is the one who came to give us what it takes. This morning I want you to think of this text, this word of Christ, and to think of it in the context of being here. Christ came into this real world, and he came that we might have life. As I pondered this, it gets to be a rather staggering thought. We were just up in the Canadian Rockies, and we were looking at, at an explanation of how all of this happened. And they explained how some 500 or more million years ago, when the crust under the sea forced its way under the land mass of the North American continent, and pushed it upward so that these huge stone peaks erupted with all of their grandeur. And as you stand and look at this and you drive for miles in the midst of this, this amazing, awesome beauty, and you view the glaciers of the ages, and you think of the God who is there before any of this happened, the God who created this marvelous heaven and earth, 
He is the God who, who said, I have come to you. He became flesh. He lived among us. And we beheld his glory. And he said, I want to be your friend. <clears throat> Amazing thing. My friend, this creator God, me with my ego, my foolishness, my self-interest, my little petty thoughts, what does he have in common with me? My sins and perversities should stand like a wall against him. For when we choose our friends, we find those people with whom we have something in common. We want to play our games with them if they have like interests. We want to study with them. We want to work with them. It depends on their interests and ours, their age level and ours, their social position and ours. We make friends for convenience and companionship. And here's the, the creator of all things coming and wanting to be with us. With me? With you? Precisely. Jesus said, I'm like a good shepherd. I know all of your names. And I'll defend you to death. You can trust me. Because I chose to come. I wasn't just born like you are. He said, I chose to come. Because I want to be with you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, he said on another occasion. And the mystery of his love is difficult to understand, isn't it? But think of the implications. The Christian faith is a shared faith. It's a relationship with Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And that gives to each one of us a dignity and a calling and a sense of beauty and worth. And it gives us an association of power and of strength. My life is now a fellowship. And it means that I have capabilities as I walk with Christ that I would never have if I walk alone. And as I think of this, this marvelous truth that he said, I chose to come that you may have life. As I, as I think of this, I need to respond. And my response is always a physical, fleshly response to a spiritual awakening. 
For that's the only way I can respond. How do you love? Not just in your mind. You express it, do you not? Everything you do takes on a physical reality, if it's real, because we are finite. We live in this world. We're captive to this world. And all within it is not evil, simply because it's material. We use it to express what is within. And with spiritual devotion, I now want to obey him. It isn't a duty to be obedient. It's a joy. Because he's so loved and he comes with my goodness at heart, he gives me a capacity for living that I never would have had without him. And I have a destiny that is wrapped up in the destiny of God himself. And day by day he's watching and guiding. And it isn't only as we assemble for worship that he's present. But I can get up every morning and say, it's great to be alive. He indeed came to give life, and he's given it to me. And I want to obey him. For he didn't come to give us a set of rules. And he didn't come with some narrow thoughts. But he came to release us for higher reaches and greater things. And we are the ones who limit ourselves. Not the Lord of life who came to give us life in abundance. Does he walk with you, my friend? Does he care for you? And are you working and living, playing, helping others, knowing that he's there, caring for you, watching for you, supporting you? This is a great motivation for living a godly life. There's a human illustration of it. I'd like to share it. It's Ogmandino's story. When he was a coach at a little college up in the state of Maine, Fairfield College by name, he had a track team that was so excellent that it participated in the intramural sports of universities up in New England, Yale and Harvard and Dartmouth and Amherst and Boston University and the rest of them. Well, they were coming to the end of the season and they had this one great meet at Yale. <clears throat> and the track team of Yale and Fairfield was tied. And at the end of the meet, <clears throat> they were going to run a mile race. Now, there were three boys on the track team of Fairfield. Two of them were big, strapping young men, ran close to the 4.05 time that they had to make. And then one other little boy, much shorter, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> much shorter and not, not a great runner. His name was Tommy. And the coach 
had him on the team when he was a freshman and a sophomore and a junior. Now he was a senior, very seldom ran, but he was so enthusiastic that the coach kept him around for, for the good of the team. And he was a morale builder. Well, the two good runners became ill that day with some food poisoning. And the only one left was Tommy. And everyone joked that Tommy kind of waddled when he ran and never broke 4.30 in the mile. And here he was going to run a race. And the coach went to him and said, Tommy, I'm afraid you're going to have to run for us today. And Tommy said, I better pray about this. And he did. On his knees for a moment, he got up and he said, Coach, I'll do it. I'll do the best I can. So he went out in the field and rather than watch this, the coach was looking down and sort of wincing, wondering what was happening. And some of the boys in the benches poked him and said, Coach, look at Tommy. And the coach looked and there Tommy had passed everybody in the field, including the Yale men. There's only one man ahead of him who was the best runner in the whole league. And he was gaining on him. He was a man from Harvard. And as the race came to a close, Tommy was five yards ahead of him in breasting the tape. And there was pandemonium that broke loose. Here they won the, the, the race not only, but the whole meet because of Tommy. And, and as he came back toward the bench, the coach went out to meet him and put his arm around him and said, Tommy, do you know what you've done? And, and Tommy was sort of choked up. He went and sat on the bench, and the coach said, Tommy, how did you do this? You bettered your time by 27 seconds. You ran this thing in 4.04. said, it's unbelievable. And Tommy finally looked up through his tears, and he said, Coach, I didn't run this race for you, and I didn't run it for the team, and I didn't run it for Fairfield. I ran it for my dad. And the coach said, your dad? Yes, he said, my dad came back from World War II in a wheelchair. He's never walked. But he always said to me, Tommy, you run. And you run the best race you can. And someday you're going to win a big one. And when you win the big one, with the help of God, I'm going to get out of this chair. And he went on to say, you know, coach, I knew that my form isn't very good and I never really wanted my dad to watch me, and he never did. And then this morning I got a telegram and it said, <clears throat> tried to reach you by phone, dad died last night, hurry home, sis. So when you asked me, coach, I figured it was God giving me his guidance, and he wanted me to run for Dad. And I knew that for the first time in his life, Dad was watching me run this race. And so I ran for him. The strong motivation of love and devotion that releases power in one, that person never 
suspected to have. Think of living daily in the presence of God Almighty, of Jesus who loves you, who by his Spirit lives within and will guide, always watching, rooting for you, helping you, positively for you. That's why he came. Not simply to redeem you to eternity, but so that you can have life here and have it abundantly. The Christian faith is the most relevant and practical faith we can have. And the joy of doing God's will is motivated by a devotion to the one who who came for us and who knows us by name. We can stand up against this world. We can be there in the most difficult circumstances when all the odds are against us and it would seem that we can never succeed if we remember there's the living Christ who is with us, guiding us, fulfilling for us our deepest needs. And he does, doesn't he? Our need for importance and significance, which destroys the peace of so many who feel they haven't got it, who have an inferiority complex that destroys them, The only thing important is whether God is there with us. When that grips our hearts, we have this deep need met, a release to be ourselves and to allow God to work through us. Remember, Jesus did not come to limit us, to restrict our activities, to belittle our capacities as human beings. He came rather to release us, to give us the power of his presence and the beauties of life. That's the Lord we worship. We have what it takes to live in this world. And we need to be in it for just a few make the difference. God bless us with that presence and give us a sense of his nearness. Let us pray. Thank you, O Lord, for coming. Coming to make us live to the fullest. To give us opportunities to be more than we have the capacity to be. Because your life and ours become joined in fulfillment of your purposes. Guide us as we leave this place. And may the world never look so black. But what the brightness of your face and presence is there to illumine the way that we should go. And may we find the peace and the joy of our faith, evidenced in our lives, that others may be attracted and may know you. In Christ we pray.
Amen.